Genesis 12:4 So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. And I'm Brian Bales. And we want to talk to you about the Bible. Specifically, we want to talk to you about Genesis 12. Today we're going to discuss Genesis 12 and all the different things uh, concerning it. We're going to have a reading of the chapter by Brian in just a moment. And uh, then we're going to have some initial observations, a discussion of the theme, the big questions, the big things about it, and then finally an application concerning this chapter. But before we do that, I want to encourage you to uh, go to our respective websites. Um, if you'd like to go to NorthColumbusChristians.com, that's where you will find uh, this podcast and other podcasts such as Retro Sermons and, uh, of course, the podcast for the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. I want to encourage you to go there and check that out um, and uh, send us an email, uh, especially in terms of this podcast, if you're interested. We have an email at walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. We encourage you to email us questions, uh, especially if you hear something in the show that you have a question about, or you have uh, maybe you disagree with something. You want us to talk about it and deal with it, and we can do we can do that. We want to interface with you. We want to encourage you to discuss these things with us, and so we look forward to hearing from you in that. Um, also, go to gardencitycoc.org. That's where Bryant, uh, the website for the church where Bryant is working mm-hmm, with, mm-hmm. Uh, it's where their website is. And uh, we encourage you to interface with us however possible, and uh, hopefully that will be good for you, uh, good for us, obviously, and uh, as we continue to walk through the book. Genesis chapter 12, reading from the New King James translation, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. Then he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there. For the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. 
Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So as we get into our initial observations, Bryant, what are some things that have jumped out at you in that reading, in uh, that initial look at Genesis 12? Well, I mean, this is where, you know, Genesis really shifts substantially, um, because before the flood, there was no covenant, and it seems like God just let man kind of do his own thing, and I mean, you have people like Enoch, uh, the seventh generation after Adam, who seemed like uh, there was a pretty strong ability that Enoch had to not only interact with God, but, you know, have a pretty close and intimate relationship with the Lord. Um, but it doesn't seem like the time before the flood was quite like this, where God chose one man to make a specific covenant with like this. Um, and so it just seems like Genesis really is the book of the beginning of, of covenants, and it shows the necessity of covenant, because this covenant, obviously, is what led to Christ coming into the earth. And the fulfillment of this covenant is really what Christ did. Um, So it just shows the necessity of covenants from God to man. It shows the power of that covenant. And it shows the power of the simplicity of the few words that are said here, Um, not just in the greater biblical context, but, you know, even in the events that we'll talk more about as we go on. Um, so that, that's one big thing that, that just really sticks out to me is, is just how much of a shift this brings in, in the book of Genesis and how important it is that God made this covenant with Abram. That's a, that's a really neat answer because we've been talking about big stuff from, from up till now, basically. Hmm. Like big world-changing things, typically. Mm-hmm. You know, And now the focus sort of distills on this one man. We're going to talk about this one man and what he did for the Lord and how his family was blessed because of that and and really we've got the beginning of the the you know the beginning of the rest of your life you know the beginning of the rest of the bible here and the way that all this comes about the way that all this works out um is really how the rest of the bible you know comes about one one of the things i noticed and what's interesting is that moses in writing this again we're talking about moses as the the uh author of Genesis, um, he he took the time to, to to specifically say, you know, he went through Canaan, uh, verse six. He passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. The Canaanites were then in the land. You know that that helps us understand the audience that Moses is writing for. Yeah, Shechem is brought up a lot. It seems like it's a place um, that's connected with the idea of God's faithfulness. Um, and I can't remember the, the specific references, but Shechem is a place that's mentioned actually over and over. So I'm pretty sure Shechem is where, uh, Joshua says what we're going to talk about in the, uh, you know, one of the points that we're going to have in the application part, I'm pretty sure that when Joshua says, choose this day, he's standing in Shechem. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Verse one. 
Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel yep. to Shechem yep. and yep. called there for the elders Joshua of Israel. Yeah. So, yeah. So this is a this is a huge place as far as you know connection to these people's lineage and where they came from and the importance of this place. Uh, so that's that's why that's why Moses mentions it because he's like he he you know he went through Shechem. Yeah, and maybe as we read through Genesis, we can kind of take note of that because I I think Shechem is mentioned again in Genesis. You know, and that's like what God does. God he gives us cues, you know, like mm-hmm. he gives us things that we can recognize that connect things together in a lot of different ways, which is just really helpful because it helps establish themes and ideas and sometimes principles involved in application. When you connect these, these, uh, cues together, I guess, as we go through the story. Yeah. And I do think it is interesting that he goes to Pharaoh and this Pharaoh, he's just not, just doesn't really come across as nasty as as the later Pharaoh does, right? In Exodus, and uh, not quite sure why. That was one of the things that you know. Every time I read through Genesis, I'm just like, "Huh, this Pharaoh's an okay guy." <laughs> at yeah. least that's the way he comes across, you know. Um, but at the very least, he doesn't seem to do too much harm here, right? So, and I think uh, kind of on the note of uh, God's covenant. Um, back to that for just a second. Um, you know, in Genesis, and it's this is really true of every book of the Bible. This isn't just true of Genesis. But, you know, I think one of the key things is to recognize that when God makes his covenants, really what we're seeing with the people that are involved in that covenant is God working and acting. That really it's, it's God who's working. So Abraham, uh, with his sons, he has uh, Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob, and then Jacob has... 12 sons. And what God does through Genesis is he works through them, even when it's not explicitly stated every step of the way. So like Joseph, for instance, he's sold into Egypt. At the end of the book, he ends up being exalted in Egypt and his brothers end up being gathered to Egypt. And Joseph says, God intended this for good, even though you intended it for evil. So Joseph recognized it was actually God who worked. And we're able to see that through his recognition of that, even though in the text, there's no narrative explanation that says, you know, when he's sold into slavery, there's no narrative that says, hey, this is actually God working. You know, we're just supposed to understand that because these men are attached to God's covenant. And so it's important, I think, to recognize that that Genesis isn't just about Abraham and what Abraham did or Isaac and what Isaac did or Jacob. It's about God working. And these men are just vessels by which he can manifest his glory and the glory of his covenant. So some of the deeper things in this section, we want to focus on uh, the big things that are going on. How does this look in the bigger concept of the Bible? And, you know, we've already hit on a couple of those things, but we want to step through a few of the things that, that we see here. Uh, because, again, chapter 12 is a very pivotal chapter, um, not just in Genesis, again, but in the context of the whole Bible. And uh, I do want to share that with our listeners as well, this the thought that the Bible does have a context. Um, all through the scriptures, what do you have with the Bible? You've got a collection of books. And some people would probably like to deny the fact that you actually have a context to the whole Bible. And uh, they want to try to talk about and focus on the context, the local context. But, you know, the fact is you've got to, when you're harmonizing, when you're properly going through proper exegesis, as you might say, um, you're trying to look at the local context. You're looking at what's going on in that book. Does that make sense uh, in in terms of the book? And then the greater context of Scripture, because there's an ongoing story going on. So uh, we want to to focus on both of those things. And here we see a relationship that is forged between Abraham and God. And it is really, as Bryant has already begun to speak about, it's a covenant. 
And a really neat working definition of a covenant that I've come across over time. This is not mine at all, actually. It's a friend of mine named Tom Holly that really helped me see a lot of these things. Um, and he doesn't quite put it this way. But uh, basically, a, a covenant is an agreement kept by a relationship and manifesting a promise. So I say that mm-hmm. because we might think that covenant is very much like a contract. It's like a contract you sign. Okay, I'll do this if you do that. But the reality of the situation of a relationship with God is that there's no deal making here, right? Mm. God gives the deal. He, he, he tells us what that is. And we decide whether we're going to go by that or not. And so uh, it's an agreement in the sense that I'm agreeing with God. Abram took it upon himself to agree with God and this relationship is forged between them. And if that relationship is maintained and continued, that manifests in a promise. And we already have promises that are laid out in this chapter, right? Um, he's taken to a land that I'll show you. So the sense that he's going to get this land, this special land. And uh, we see immediately almost that it's the land of Canaan. He says, I'll make a great nation out of you. We're going to see over the course of the of the Old Testament, and especially through uh, Genesis and Exodus, that this this nation is going to be the nation of Israel. And he says, "I'm going to bless you, make your name great. You'll be a blessing." And then in verse three, "In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed." And what we typically call that is the seed promise. And uh, we have to look at that in in a big picture to ask, you know, what is the, the manifestation of that promise. And uh, I'll just kind of straight up say that we believe that the manifestation of that promise is in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of that seed promise that through him, through the line of Abraham, all nations would be blessed. And uh, it ultimately came to be known as the Davidic line or the, you know as being the son of David. So uh, a lot of things to think about, a lot of things to talk about there. But uh, but those three promises, again, this is the beginning of what we see unfold for the rest of Scripture. Yeah, actually, something on that, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this may be this may be a stretch, but it seems like this was actually fulfilled twice, once in a minor way and once in a major way. And the minor way is in Solomon, uh, David's son. Uh, the nation was established on its borders. It had complete peace and security. They had prosperity in an unbelievable way, just incredible prosperity. And everybody around them was blessed. Everybody was pledging allegiance to Solomon and the kingdom of Israel. The queen of Sheba came from the world over to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And she was so amazed that she blessed God for blessing his people because it was so obvious. Like it's not, this is not a nation (laughs) created by the wisdom of man. This is all of God. So that that I think is the minor fulfillment and that minor fulfillment is actually a shadow, much like the tabernacle was a shadow. That minor fulfillment is a shadow of when it was majorly fulfilled in Christ and the church. Um, Cause these promises actually are still ongoing um, because Christ fulfilled these, but then just like Solomon and his kingdom, they could have stayed in that situation. Uh, but because it was something that was corruptible on earth, didn't stay that situation really at all for very long, but because Jesus ascended into heaven and where he dwells is incorruptible. Well, now these promises are incorruptible. I mean, they're steady, they're secured. And so these are always available now. And anyone who's a part of that seed promise of Christ inherits these things in a greater measure than Solomon ever could have imagined. Um, so I think that's it's just kind of neat to think about that, that God takes these to two conclusions, one with the physical conclusion. And then as soon as he fulfills that, then he begins taking it to its greater conclusion to Christ. And you can see how he like, cause so I'm going to open this up and just talk about it just for a second and then close it. But after Solomon, it's almost like the work of that section of God's plan was complete. And all that was left was striving to maintain. And so prophets were sent from that point forward to keep pulling them back to that mm-hmm. kingdom, the way it was. Mm-hmm. And all it did was decay to destruction and God, in the midst of that, while trying to pull them back into that state, was at the same time 
working as fast as he could, knowing that he all the while was working toward Christ, was working as fast as possible through the prophets to get to the next phase Hmm. of the greater fulfillment in Christ. So he sent the prophets that he could speed up that process. Because it's like once Solomon did what he did, it's like, okay, done. Let's start moving forward. Let's move on. We're complete. Old Testament has reached its, its head. Now we're trying to move toward Christ. And you can see that. It's just, it's, it's really amazing. And it just makes the wisdom of God seen in his plan just extraordinary to read through. Even David's last words to his son Solomon kind of seem to show this, right? Uh, you know, and, and, and there's sort of a bleed through there because, uh, you know, the sense that on the one hand, he's talking about Solomon and his kingdom, but then on the other hand, uh, he's talking about the Messiah and the kingdom of the Messiah. So it's just an interesting thing to think about and consider. It is impressive that we see in verses 7 and 8 that most places that Abram is going to, he is building an altar to the Lord and we talked a little bit of that, about that before we began to record, but uh, that does show a sense that not only is he interested in continuing, continually worshiping God, and we have to understand the implication that there was, at some point, God revealed to Ab- Abram how he was to be worshipped. Um, whether Abram had known that before or whether he got it there, but he, he, was, he was seeking to worship God. And mm-hmm. uh, I do want to spend a moment talking about uh, you know what Abram actually left because we see that he left he departed uh, from Haran at one point but we see in Acts 7 and verses 2 through 4 for example that he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and uh, in Acts 7 and verse 2, it, this is Stephen speaking to the Sanhedrin uh, later on in the, in, in, the, in the New Testament age, you might say. Um, and he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of our glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I, sh- I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran, and from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. So we get a little bit more of the story there, right? The sense that he was called while he was in, uh, and it's mentioned Ur of the Chaldees uh, in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, that uh, 11 verse 28, Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. And I think it's I think it's just a coincidence that Haran is has the same name as the town. I don't think the town itself was uh, named after him because everything I've understood is that that town was existing before that, and archaeologists can see that that was a bustling place, and it would have been called that independently, I think. Um, but so anyway, I'm just trying to help us uh, construct a, a picture, a mental picture of what went on. And so Abram... What we get is that Abram and his family, Terah and his family, were actually worshiping false gods. They must have been worshiping idols because, uh, you know, we can even see, like, again, archaeologists have excavated that place, the Ur of the Chaldeans, and uh, they've been able to see where these people worshiped and what the buildings looked like. And uh, there are some interesting application things that I want to pull back to when we get to that section there. But, uh, but Abraham was called out of that life. He was called out of that, of that uh, situation. And I just wanted to mention that, <clears throat> that we see that being shown by, again, by archaeologists. The history is showing us that there were people there that worshipped... Uh, you know, multiple gods, basically. And those gods are going to be referred to later on. Well, it's interesting with Genesis being a book of separation. That's what we see here. You know, there's constantly God dividing things out. And that's 
that's what a covenant is. Like God in covenant is trying to separate us out. You know, it's just kind of deals with being holy, but I think it's kind of interesting, you know, like, like you were saying, you know, we're going to get into it a little more later, but just the idea that God was separating Abram from his family. He was separating Abram from idolatry. I mean, he was even separating Abram from his own past. It's like, you know, who you were before, none of that matters. It's who I'm going to make you. That's what matters. And he was setting apart Abram exclusively for himself. And Abram was setting apart God for himself, which what I think is what you see with the altars, you know, that Abram was dedicated to the one God, no idolatry. And, um, and just the fact that, that I think verse seven is interesting when he makes that first altar, when God spoke to him in Canaan, because the first time God spoke, he wasn't in Canaan, right? Mm-hmm. So now God is in Canaan. He says, okay, to your descendants, I will give this land. And then when he's in the land, then he builds an altar to the Lord. So he wants, he wants that to be remembered. And it, it shows you how much he values God's word that he, he wants to remember that. And I think there's some things with application in that, but we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. But you definitely see that, that, that separating out and that exclusivity mm-hmm. being the purpose of that separation. You know, one other thing we might point out is that it would seem that, you know, down the road, uh, you know, <laughs> quite uh you know hundreds of years from now where we're looking at uh the children of israel are going to be pulled into babylon and Mm -hmm. uh another word for the babylonians or at least uh those among them who were very well well schooled or uh well knowledgeable about uh you know the the things of their religion and things like that were called the chaldeans and so Mm -hmm. the land of the chaldeans there you know he's leaving the land of the chaldeans and there is the sense that his children, generations from now, are going to be pulled back into, uh, if it's not exactly the land of the Chaldeans, it's among the Chaldeans. And uh, they're going to be pulled back into some of that, uh, you know, tempted by some of the idolatry there. And uh, But, of course, that, that helps them in some ways when we look at uh, what that does for Israel down the road it takes it takes care of their idolatry it kind of rids them of at least the outward manifestations of that idolatry to the point that when they finally return from that captivity they're not going to want to be drawn into idolatry and they're going to be faithfully serving the lord uh even though there are going to be some problems that 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 we can see at that point but I just think it's it's interesting kind of symmetry here that Abram goes out of the land of the Chaldeans and then generations later, the children of Israel, because of their unfaithfulness, because of their own idolatry, they're pulled back into that. And it just seems fitting to me. So I'm, I got to make a point on that really quick because it's so amazing. The journey of Abram is the journey of Israel. So he starts in Babylon. That's where they end. Haran is in what Assyria would later be. Really? Okay. Assyria, obviously, had a role with judging Israel. Mm -hmm. He goes to Canaan. Then he goes to Egypt. All the places that would take Israel, Abram went in this first phase. So he starts where Israel would end. He goes next to the place that was almost like the the first end to northern Israel. Then he goes to where they would stay, and then he goes to Egypt where they would begin. So it's almost like, so turn this to its opposite. He ends here in Egypt in this chapter. That's where they begin. Hmm. And then Israel comes out into Canaan. The first place that they end up being taken because of their sins is Assyria, where he was in Haran. And then the next place they go to is Ur, which is Babylon. Mm. And I just like, it's just kind of really interesting just how Abram touched these places that really outline their overall journey. It's an awesome point. I was just hitting on the, the very bare bones of the symmetry. And then you're like, no, wait a minute, look at it bigger. It's, <laughs> it's a lot of symmetry there. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting as you know, and, and yeah, there's not amazing. a lot that we can say about that, except that that's interesting. <laughs> So, <laughs> you know, just pretty neat, and uh, and and if that was intentional by the Lord, then that's uh, that's really really interesting. So let's let's talk about why Abram lies to Pharaoh. Um, you know, this is a point where uh, in most Bible studies I've I've been in, you know, through Genesis and so on and so forth. Um, you know, we want to kind of 
drop a whole bunch of uh, blame on Abram and say, oh, he should have known better than to lie about this and things like that. Um, but, you know, he, he allows, he does allow fear to overwhelm him, I think. And, you know, he's afraid, you know, what what's he concerned about? He, he's, he's concerned about that they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. So it's for his sake that he's uh, encouraging her to lie on his point. Um, but, you know, the way that it works out, I think, Brian, you, you kind of hit on some things there before we started recording that uh, that seem to show some further principles of the covenant with God. Yeah, because it's really interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, Abram did the wrong thing here. You know, like he lied and lying is sinful. Um, but it's just interesting. God doesn't say anything this whole time. Like God doesn't say anything to anybody, not even Pharaoh. Like he just sends plagues and then Pharaoh just kind of gets it, I guess, eventually. He's just like, whoa, why didn't you tell me, you know, uh, that this was your wife? So God says nothing the whole time. Uh, Pharaoh's innocent. And like you said in the beginning of the podcast, it seems like this Pharaoh is actually a really nice, really good guy. Um, doesn't doesn't intend any malice. Like he's not taking Sarai because of any like ill intent. It's like, it looks like she's a virgin woman. So, you know, take her, you know? So he's innocent. Abram's guilty. And yet God punishes Pharaoh exceedingly. And then he rewards Abram exceedingly. Right. And I think that's pretty amazing. And I think these are demonstrating principles of grace and faith that Abraham was a man of faith. And God's covenant was a covenant of grace. And I think that's the first thing we learn about this covenant. This is a covenant that's about God's faithfulness and his graciousness. That's what God's covenant is all about. And somebody like Abram is the kind of person that God can keep that kind of covenant with. Because Abram doesn't grow prideful through this. We'll see in chapter 13, Lord willing, in the next podcast, how it seems like Abram was actually more humbled by this. Mm. Because Israel... Uh, It says in uh, Deuteronomy, the song of Moses that was to be delivered to the people, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. So when Israel got prosperous, they turned away from God. But I'll just say this in passing. Chapter 13, verse 4, Abram is exceedingly rich, and yet he makes an altar to the Lord and calls on his name. And calling on the name of the Lord is something very humble and meek. Mm. You know, so all of this humbled Abram more because I think the principle is God's grace humbled Abram. Abram. Mm. I think Abram knew he had done wrong and he was humbled by what God had done because in verse 16, Abram became, he became much richer because of this and he receives no punishment. There's no consequence. Um, and it's all because of God's faithfulness and grace. God could have punished Abram. God could have rewarded Pharaoh for being just in it at all, but he chooses to punish Pharaoh and reward Abram. And it just, it draws us to the covenant. It's like, wow, I want to be a part of something like that, you know? It it helps us to understand that, you know, God's justice is not going to be what the world calls upon for mm, justice. Mm. And and what do we right, see typically right. when people, uh, you know, see passages like this? Oh, well, you know, again, you know, a- Abraham's lousy. He's trying to put this off on his wife and, you know, um, or we could blame, we could even go so far as to blame Sarah about it. I mean, we can play this blame game forever, but the whole point of the passage is to show us that Abram made a mistake. He did something that was wrong, but in spite of his mistake, God instead chooses to show grace. And that is, uh, that's a great lesson for us. And maybe that's a good transition into application, but I mean, you see that consistently with God's covenant, you know, like David, for instance, there's times when God could have destroyed David, Mm. man, he could have just, annihilated Mm -hmm. him. If not death, he could have just humiliated him and shamed him in the eyes of everybody and used him as like a a mockery. You know, look, look what happens, Mm -hmm. you know, when you turn against me, but yet through David's sin, God actually strives to protect David's reputation and bring him more honor and exaltation. It's just like this, like Bathsheba, because David repented and because David was a man of faith, God could give him more grace even though there were consequences to that sin, they were not like what it could have been. And David did experience shame. He did experience suffering. 
but in the end, God exalted him more and God's grace abounded. You know, you just see that again and again, you know, through like Solomon. Solomon had like a thousand wives and concubines. And yet God was so faithful to Solomon that Ecclesiastes, for instance, seems like it's written and Proverbs at the end of his life, having kind of reflected on his sin and seen the vanity of the things he pursued. And again, God's faithfulness to his covenant. God could have annihilated Solomon, but he chose not to and he showed him Mm -hmm. grace. You know, just again and again, that's just the story of God's covenant. And it's the same story with us in Christ is God through Christ will wipe away our sins and he'll just forgive us and bless us, even though we deserve annihilation. And it's just, it's so amazing. And it should just draw us to God's goodness and make us feel so ashamed for our greed and pride. Hmm. And, and again, it just kind of shows that if we want to look at it in the other way, then we're not properly appreciating the grace that's been bestowed on us. Um, mm, mm, mm. The, the sense that if I'm spending all my time talking about how bad Abraham was or Abram was and all these other things, and it, it's like when we're calling for judgment on somebody, we're calling for punishment for somebody. Mm, mm, um, mm. And we're not looking at it. I mean, really, if I'm willing to call for judgment on somebody, I need to be willing to to say, to ask the question, okay, what do I need to have judgment, you know, uh, uh, what do I need to have done for me? Um, You know, what have I done? What punishment have I uh, brought about? So now we come to the final uh, section of our show when we talk about application. And I want to encourage us to think about that I can study the Bible, I can read the Bible, but if I'm not applying it to myself and where I am and uh, what I'm doing and what kind of person I am right now, then really it becomes pointless. Uh, It becomes this pointless exercise. And so that's why we have this section. Um, The most obvious application I think that we have in this chapter is that uh, when God says to go, go. And that's precisely what uh, what Abraham does. I mentioned earlier I was going to build a little bit more on uh, Abraham leaving Ur of the Chaldees, leaving Mesopotamia, going to, to Haran, and from there going to, to Canaan. And uh, in Joshua 24, in verse 14, remember we mentioned that uh, in Joshua 24, they're in Shechem. They're in the place where, where Abraham goes to, there in Canaan. And Joshua is addressing the Israelites here in Joshua 24 and verse 14. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That statement becomes very, you know, it gains a very huge perspective when we consider, of course, that that Abram was in that location, in that same place that Joshua was uh, when he said those things. And so, uh, you know, the fact of that, that Joshua is calling them to mind about the idolatrous relationship that uh, that Abram's family had and you think about what Abram had to leave in that he had to leave the way of life he had always known he had to leave the religion he had always known he had to leave the family uh, the, the I would say extended family that he had always known he brought his father with him of course and brought his family with him but still he had to leave everything he knew and that is a huge wall that, that will get in the way of people properly understanding God's will and following it. 
and being willing to give up anything. Some people say, well, you know, I, I want to become a Christian, but I don't have, I've got a different understanding now that I've read the Bible, now that I've understood the truth about salvation. My parents didn't have that knowledge. And, uh, Maybe I feel like, you know, if I if I become a Christian, I'll be turning my back on them. I'll be saying that they were not right. And that's a hard choice, isn't it? But when God told Abram to get up and go, he went. And that's a great example for us, to be willing to leave everything for the sake of the Lord. And especially if we're if we're looking at family ties and things like that, we got to be willing to get rid of those things, not necessarily get rid of them in a, in a hateful way, but we've got to be willing to put our priorities you know, in the right place. And so whatever happens with my parents, I'm going to be the example that I need to be. Whatever happens with my family, I'm going to be who God wants me to be. And I, sh- I should know that whatever happens, that's going to be the best situation for them. Uh, so that they can at least, even if they didn't get this this right, they can see that God got this right in me, that that God helped me to see these things. Yeah, just how God motivates that, you know, because it's like the idols can't gain you anything. You know, nobody nobody has the power to actually, you know, bless ultimately with eternal life, you know, above anything else, you know, with the riches of the glory of the resurrection you know, only God can do that. And God draws us to put away the allegiances we have, knowing that none of those allegiances really profit us. And yet God's telling Abraham, look, if you go and you separate yourself, it's going to not only profit you, it's going to profit everybody around you. So if you want to profit your family, if you want to profit yourself, the way you do that is separating yourself for the Lord, because only in him are true blessings. And especially of the resurrection Uh, you know, cause just like, I mean, Jesus said multiple times in the gospels, you know, what profit is it? You could gain the whole world, you know, family, friends, riches, whatever. But if you lose your soul, I mean, you've lost, you've lost everything, you know? So God's trying to draw us out of everything useless and into the place of usefulness and profit. And he gives us, he gives us so many promises to do that. You know, like there's so many things that he says that, are more than motivating, more than sufficient. Uh, Hebrews eleven, for example, we got plenty of examples there that we can mm. that we can look at and see. Right. Specifically, Abraham, he's called to go out, and he goes. And right. uh, the author of Hebrews really lifts him up in that chapter because of that. Um, but that drawing nature of the covenant relationship with God—that's that's one of the things. One of the big questions of the examples of faith we have in Scripture is. What would cause them to do this? What you know? What what would bring them to this point to give up everything for this sake? I mean, is it just uh, something that gives us a little bit of comfort? Is it just something that you know? And someone might say, "Well, Abram profited a lot with his relationship with God." We already talked about how wealthy he he becomes, or uh, maybe already was. I don't know, but uh, but you know, Hebrews eleven and verse. Uh, let's see. So. Hebrews 11 verse 10 says he waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. This is talking about Abraham. And so he he leaves what would be, I would assume, to be a comfortable place. Um, Ur the Chaldees was a pretty bustling place, a comfortable place, even in those ancient times. Uh, same thing about Haran from everything I understand. So he's called to to leave those places and essentially become a nomad, someone who does not have an established home, someone who's going to be drifting from place to place. And that's kind of how we see the rest of Abraham's life, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. And so we're encouraged to think about that uh, from that standpoint and uh, to be able to see that that God intends for us to uh, make the same decision that uh, that Abram made to be willing to give up everything. And what's the drawing nature for us? Well, in John 12 and verse 32, Jesus says, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Uh, that's not talking about Jesus' ascension. And that's not talking about Jesus being lifted up into heaven specifically. Certainly that's a great thing that, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God and that he rules his kingdom now. All those are wonderful, good things. 
But specifically, when he's talking about being lifted up from the earth, he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. And when we look at the cross, we see the covenant relationship with God in the perfect way. We see the fact that he is willing to give and willing to sacrifice for our benefit. And we see that in this chapter as well. Uh, in terms of the fact that you know Abram does this terrible thing, he lies to Pharaoh. He li- he he causes his wife to lie, and uh, this is just a big mess. But the wonderful thing about big messes is that God can take care of messes. God can clean up messes. God can make it such that that mess has never happened. And uh, especially in terms of spiritual uh, aspect, First uh, John one nine, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we need to understand that covenant relationship. And of course, Abram is is just a shadow of the greater blessings that we have in Christ in terms of that ongoing relationship in Christ. When we look, for example, at Ephesians one three, uh, Paul says, "There, blessed be the God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us." with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I think, uh, Brian, you mentioned at one point in terms of Solomon, and uh, you, you made an awesome point there that you know once Solomon had established the temple, this is a very permanent kind of situation that the Israelites were able to appreciate. Um, they didn't. They weren't limited to the tabernacle. They weren't limited to those things. They had. They had a real place that they could go to and congregate at. And at the same time, they have this situation where, uh, over time, they they did indeed spread out among the nations, and they were able to talk to the Gentiles from time to time about the one true God. Um, and from that point, I, I think y- y- your point earlier about the maintaining that situation, God sending his prophets, really, it it just feels very, very similar. This is why I study the minor prophets is so great, by the way. It's so similar to the situation that we have with the church today, is the sense that we've been given this great permanence in Christ. We we have, uh, you know, uh, we're supposed to be the temples, right? We're supposed to be the priests. We're supposed to be the ones that are maintaining, they're doing those right things. Uh, In fact, uh, Titus 3.8 uh, Paul encourages the brethren to be careful to maintain good works. And all throughout the New Testament, there's this idea of maintaining. There's this idea of holding on. There's this idea of holding on to our confession, holding on to our profession. And that's what we're encouraged to do. So we don't, we don't need prophets like the Israelites did because we have the full revelation of the prophecy. We have the full revelation of Scripture. And so... Uh, God, God gives us all these examples of saying, "Hold on to Christ, hold on to your life, hold on to your eternity, uh, hold on to these great spiritual blessings." And uh, even if we, again, if, even if we mess up those things, God, God can help us in that. If we're penitent, if we want to truly serve Him, if our mindset is that I want to be with God, then God's going to work with that. God's going to help us in that. And, and what a great blessing that is that we can now enjoy the fullest extent of everything that really began right here. Yeah, think about it. What if the king after Solomon, which this wasn't the case, but what if the king after Solomon was faithful like David? And what if the nation was faithful like David? You know, the kingdom under Solomon's reign could have just been a taste of the beginning of Just like what is said about us spiritually, you know, blessing upon blessing upon blessing. I mean, Solomon's kingdom could have become something unfathomable, but we don't get to know because of the sin of the people, you know, because God even, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6, you know, not even a lily or, or not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one single lily. So clearly what Solomon had, I mean, seems so amazing, but really it's like, we just don't have a grasp on the glory of man that God intends because of unfaithfulness, you know, cause God really, he has to restrain himself because if he does bless, um, you know, we turn away. He knows what's truly good. You know, if like, for instance, I won't bring up this, this, that example. There's an example of someone I know that, uh, kind of relates to that principle, but it's, it's the principle that if, if we really are drawn to desire physical blessings and we esteem those as being glory, it's impossible to serve God, you know? So, and you see that because when Solomon was blessed like that, I mean, he turned, he turned away, I mean, massively, you know, just complete apostasy. And 
that nation being so blessed was the apostasy that continued all the way to the end because the riches of Israel that were even just leftovers like from Solomon's time. And then people came and looted it. They gave money away. And yet in Hezekiah's time, which is way later, Josiah's time, they still had riches. So it's like that all those riches became such a curse. I mean, it just, it became the very reason that God had to destroy that nation. And, and you have to think God does not restrain himself with spiritual blessings. He does not because those are the things that really draw us into a close relationship with him, like Ephesians 1 verse 3. You know, on that same point, I think spiritual or maybe even miraculous events or things that people look at and think about, well, if that happened to me, then I would really be faithful. You know, if if God called mm-hmm. upon me personally mm-hmm. like he did Abram, uh, there, there would be no stop to my faithfulness. I, I wouldn't have any problems then. Uh, but here Abram has a problem almost, you know, and, and, and the, Mm. but the reality even then is God has called upon us. God, God's called upon us through his word. He doesn't have to call to you individually. And so it's important that we appreciate that we've been called to this greater life. We've been called to inherit these promises that really we had nothing to do with creating or starting. Um, we didn't start this. We didn't, we didn't do these things. God did all these things and he's inviting us to be a mm-hmm. part of what he wants, wants us to have in our lives. Uh, one of the things too, and Brian, you've got this down, the idea of being merciful. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I do think there's a great lesson here in the Pharaoh that, you know, I, I, I would. Mm-hmm. I, I've got down. The, he he's almost neutrally graceful. I, I don't think he's graceful because he's a follower mm-hmm. of God necessarily or anything like that. I think he's graceful right. just because he's an okay guy. You know, he he could easily have uh, uh, killed Abram, killed his wife. You know, and just said, you know, how dare you lie to me in this way, uh, or just killed Abram. You know, done exactly what Abram was afraid of. Killed Abram, just take Sarah as his wife. But uh, but he doesn't do that. And so they do send him away, but they don't take anything from him. They don't, uh, you know, again, mm-hmm. I, I think really the point that you made is is really clear that, that he doesn't materially suffer for this. And yet he does, uh, in the next chapter, we, we will see that he is very penitent about it, it, it would seem. And uh, he, he's thinking about mm-hmm. those things. And so uh, it, it's important mm-hmm. that we that we make sure that we're looking at things and looking at situations in the way that God looks at them and appreciating that we don't right. have to meet out every single thing. Now there is a place, of course, there's a, there's a place where we understand that, that justice has to be done. If someone has done a wrong against mm. you and you make it clear to them that wrong has been done, they need to make that right. Um, but you choose mm. whether you hold on to that or not. Right. Uh, I think some people, we get into this maybe a little mixed up concept that I have to forgive everyone. Well, yes and no. Um, If you mean that forgiving means that you're not going to be bitter about it, that you're just going to let it go and you're going to go on with your life. And if that person ever wants to come and talk to you about that, you'll be open about that. Then, yeah, I guess I guess if that's what you think of as forgiving, then sure. But really forgiving to me means something that's that's done completely right and 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 so it seems like this situation was resolved at least in the best that 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 they could i mean you know pharaoh is done wrong you know it, uh, a- abram does wrong to pharaoh is what i mean and pharaoh just reasons with him looks why did you say this and, and confronts him about this and uh and so while we need to make sure that justice is done that the right thing is done uh, we can still be merciful and gentle and decide to be uh, a good example and be more like the Lord in that as well. Yeah, and uh, Proverbs 19.11 says, that this is the New King James, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his glory is to overlook a transgression. You know, and just having that attitude makes you equipped to get close to people and develop relationships with people who are because being close to people is hard, you know, because people are messed up. You know, they say things that 
you know, can be abrasive. They, you know, just people are, people are difficult, you know, and just God's wisdom is, is so amazing to be willing to, you know, see into Abraham's heart and, and work out this so that Abraham could be blessed. And yet still, just like you said, Stephen, understand the glory of God through it and be penitent about it. Um, but yeah, cause so much of application, you know, like for instance, like you mentioned the minor prophets, we're learning to become like God. And when we see God acting, we strive to imitate that. And so I think this is a principle Jesus taught when he says, you know, someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Someone wants to take your coat, give him your tunic. You know, someone presses you one mile, go with them too. You know, bless your enemies, pray for, pray for those who persecute you. You know, you see this principle in God's character because no doubt this pained God exceedingly. I mean, what was going on with Jesus in Gethsemane was, I think, the impact sin makes on God even just one time when we sin one time. So no doubt this pain God, but he hides that pain and he's bringing the focus on Abraham's blessing. And I just think that's amazing. You know, mercy is so complicated. And if we want to be like God, we really need to learn to be merciful. And I think oftentimes that means hiding our pain in serving people because really God was serving Abraham and serving people means we need to hide pain and so that they can be blessed. And I just, we really need to be people who seek to bless others, to seek to give and be generous and um, be kind and not return evil for evil, wrong for wrong. But just like Jesus said, you know, um, return a blessing instead. I think that even Romans 12 says that, um, you know, return a blessing instead. So you see that in God's character here in amazing ways. Can I uh, maybe halfway disagree with you? Halfway disagree. <laughs> I think we're going to come back to the same place though, Right. Um, because I do have to bring in, since we're in the application section, I do, I do need to bring in the thought that, uh, you know, Jesus says in Matthew eighteen fifteen, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So I, 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 I want to sort of, maybe I don't need to qualify this, but I do want to qualify that uh, understanding completely what you're saying in the sense that there there will be times when we're pained in a certain way and we don't have to necessarily let that out right uh we can deal with it on our own but of course there are situations where someone has hurt you in such a way that you do need to let them know about that so that they can properly handle it uh so that w- you can work it out together mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, it's, it's almost in the sense where, on the one hand, you hold back as best you can, but we all know, being faulty human beings, if we internalize everything, that's not good for us. Does that make sense? Right. No, it does. Yeah, and I think having this attitude minimizes minimizes what you take offense to. You know, because I think it, it does get to a point where, like, could you really offend Jesus? I mean, did things people say to Jesus, like, did he internalize those things? You know, and so I think God's heart is one that minimizes offenses. And that's what we want. We want to minimize offenses because somebody who grows to become like God, it's, you know, it's not like you're walking on eggshells in the presence of God, you know, and when it's like we're walking on eggshells around brethren, there's either immaturity or there's pride in the heart. Like, for instance, the Corinthians, they were taking each other to court and they would not let it go. And Paul says in chapter six of first Corinthians, why not be wronged? Why not just let it go? Like why? That's the defeat that you're even taking this to the place where you're demanding justice. The Christian does not demand justice. The Christian has the ability to let things go and leave it to God. And it it's so important to minimize offenses because it it's just like, uh, I think the, the, Proverbs also says, maybe it's Ecclesiastes, that a brother, like like a city barred up and walled is like a brother to win who's been offended, you know? So it's, it's, it's that we're trying to minimize that as much as possible. And that's what I think with God here, when you enter into a covenant with someone, like brethren, like we're in a covenant with each other, Ephesians 1, 3, the unity of the spirit. When you're in a covenant with someone, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to minimize offenses so that grace can abound. And that's what you see with God and Abram. So when we treat our brethren like we're in a true covenant with each other, we will strive to not internalize hurts so that they can in turn be blessed. 
And of course, when there is a true, when there is a true wrong, right, Matthew 18, you know, go to your brother, but it'll also change how quickly we strive to do that and how eager we'll be. Like when I discover like, whoa, that offended someone like, oh man, yeah, I'm sorry. Whoa, I didn't even realize like, you know, please forgive me. You know, whereas it could just blow up into something Mm. crazy, you know, if that, if that heart to minimize offenses is not first there, you know. Very well said, you know, and, and, and we have to be willing to go the distance as far as whatever it is. Right. You know, I want to resolve this. And right, uh, right. certainly yeah. in, in the case of the church, you have, you know, some congregations will have elders, some congregations don't. And, uh, and, and when there aren't elders, sometimes it's more difficult. Sometimes it's more difficult when there, there are elders and maybe those elders aren't exactly what they should be. But that's a, that's a whole different thing. But, but I think what we're getting back to here is that, you know, this is something that Abram did something wrong toward the Pharaoh and he used his wife in that. And it's wrong, it's it's evil, it's bad. But they talked it over, they worked it out, and they worked it out in a rather graceful way overall. And especially in the big scheme of what you see in most disagreements in the Old Testament, uh, it would seem like they work it out very well, <laughs> comparatively. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I I thought I figured we come come around to the same place there. Um, because it, this is a balance, you know, it's, it's a sense where right. we're, we're, we're making sure that our mindset already is the sense that I'm not going to let myself be upset by just every little thing. And right. if something comes up that offends me, I'm not just going to run off and just, you know, um, you're going to act in a balanced and a graceful way. Uh, when there is an offense that you can tell that you offended somebody, as you said, you're going to double your effort to say, uh, what you know? Whatever I need to do to make this right, please tell me, and be willing mm-hmm. to understand where that fault might be, and uh, have that open and honest heart and that willingness to uh, to to be like God in the sense that even though God <laughs> God technically shouldn't offend anybody, but yet people are offended by God all the time, and uh, but yet what does He do? He He continues to to strive to do good things. He continues to to encourage others toward good things, and uh, and we can do the same. We can do the same. And that's the that's the beautiful thing about looking at Genesis. By the way, that you know we can look at these examples and we can see where they're not right. We can see where they might be pretty good, or you know. But at the end of the day, what we're being encouraged by in the New Testament is to be more like God. Uh, we're not encouraged necessarily to be like these people. Um, there are some good aspects to Abraham that we can emulate and appreciate, and we can aim at those things. But it's like Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ is the one that we're truly imitating there. Just one last thing, just the purpose and impact of obedience. You know, that God wasn't just pulling Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and Haran and then just leaving him alone. You know, God was with Abram. And God was striving to impact the world through him, you know, and Abram might not have been able to perceive that at every step of the way. Obviously, he didn't when he lied about Sarah uh, or at this point, Sarai. Um, But the thing is, God was working to change the world through Abram. You know, we need to think about that with ourselves as well. Like, how do we impact our family? How do we impact our environment? We do that in our obedience to the Lord. Because God's trying to change the world. He's trying to change everything about the environment around us. But that happens when we have the faith that is willing to act, just like Abram act. Um, because God did change the world through this. But it's because God was able to work through Abram and through those who were faithful in his seed. Because ultimately, uh, Romans chapter 2, the end of it, um, says it's not about those who are physically circumcised, but it's those whose hearts are circumcised. Those are the ones who are truly Abraham, Abraham's descendants, those who are of faith in Romans 4. So when we have faith, God is seeking to do the same things with us. He's seeking to change the world around us, you know, through our obedience. And so God can change your family. God can change your friendships. God can change the brokenness of things you're struggling with. He can change the uh, the difficulties and trials of our lives, and he can he can turn the curse of those things into a blessing if we just have faith. And so I think it's amazing just to see God wasn't just telling Abraham to do stuff, to do right things. He was seeking to do something through his faith that would have an 
everlasting impact. Well, I would add more to that, but I'd be afraid that I would mess it up. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> really appreciate all the points, Bryant. Thank you so much, as always, for uh, no, for you. uh, your your good points today and your input into the study. And uh, we hope that it's been beneficial for you. Um, and uh, we encourage you again to take a look at uh, our podcast. We're now actually. Uh, now as this the recording we've got a lot uh we we, we uh, we've been recording a lot in uh prep for the study so as we record this we just uh started the podcast we as far as making it live the other day and uh, we have it listed on itunes and google play as well and uh, so we encourage you to look at those and subscribe if at all possible and uh, encourage you to go to you know the websites that we plugged beforehand but uh, thankful for your time and uh, we encourage you to join us next time as we continue to walk through the book thank you again bryant thank you Stephen. it's great to be able to spend the time yeah. study well and be lights to his glory The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org.